This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 38. I look at deals all day without a dollar value, so whether I can afford them or not, because if it's a deal that I really want to buy and it's just because I don't have the money, then I'll go find someone to help me out or come in on the deal. Hey, commercial property community. Thank you for joining me. My name is Andrew Bean. I'm your host today. And on today's show, Tam Thorogood joins me on the show today and she goes in depth on her background in doing JVs with her JV partners, basically like a JV 101. If you are looking at potentially doing JVs in future or placing money, then this is an excellent episode for you. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching Commercial Property Show Community or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. My guest today is professional investor Tam Thorogood. How are you, Tam? Hey, good, Andrew. I'm awesome. Thanks for having me back. No worries, mate. You are very, very welcome. So, Tam, can you tell listeners just a little bit about yourself, your background in property and everything? Yeah, my first 20 years of investing was residential. I mainly renovated. I did a few little buy and holds and a few small lot subdivisions. And then about eight years ago, I got rid of all my residential property and I fully switched to commercial property, which is now I'm full-time yeah, commercial investor. Awesome, mate. So you're not doing any other work now. All of your income is solely coming from cash flow. Correct. Yes. That is awesome. Now, today we are going to be having a chat about a different way to invest. It's almost like a different investor mindset as well. So, Tam, can you explain what a JV deal is? Yeah, I guess, look, in the property arena, the term JV for people who are novices, it can seem like it's used quite loosely and it seems to cover a myriad of scenarios with different outcomes. But put really simply, a JV is just where two or more parties, they sign a legally binding agreement for a specific project or a deal. So similar to a business partnership. Very, very good description of it. That's excellent. Why would you actually do a JV? Like what's the advantages? Why would you share a deal with someone? There's a few reasons. One might be that you have a level of comfort in commercial that's purely you're willing to put up some money to get into a deal because you haven't done one yourself or it all seems too overwhelming because as we know, commercial can be a little more in depth than, than residential. The second reason would be, say in my instance, I, I look at deals 
all day without a dollar value. So whether I can afford them or not, because if it's a deal that I really want to buy and it's just because I don't have the money, then I'll go find someone to help me out or come in on the deal. Yeah, that's that's a really awesome way to look at it. So in bringing someone in, how do you actually find a JV partner? Yeah, for me, I mean, I've been involved in five JVs. Three of them I've got set up and they're ongoing today and two where I was just a, a silent partner. But most of those people I have known either in a business capacity before or just friends. And so how did you actually, so you're friends with someone and then you say, hey, I've got this deal. How do you actually like go around the subject asking someone, do you want to do this with me? Because it's a bit of a touchy subject sometimes, money. Oh, 100%. And money can break up families and it can break up friendships. So I've always taken the attitude to keep it of a business nature. So when I have a deal or a, a prospect that I'm thinking about, I actually present it like a business deal. So I'll run some numbers. I'll tell them what I'm thinking. You know, in a JV deal, if you treat it like a business, you want to start with the end in mind. This is what I think I want to buy. This is how we're going to do it. And this is how it'll finish. So I kept it very structured, very clear. And then that way, if they've got more questions or it does pique their interest, then you can go further with it with some more formalized information. I mean, I've done this a few times myself unsuccessfully. I mean, when someone turns you down, it sometimes feels like they're turning you down, but it actually could just be the opportunity, right? Yeah, absolutely. It is um, when you are the person putting the JV together, it is really personal because it's something you're very passionate about and you've done a lot of research about it. And it's like, I love this deal. Why don't you love it? And you think it's about you. You're dead right. It's often that the deal is just not suitable for what they want to achieve. It seems like too much risk for their risk profile because everyone's different. 100%. So, mate, how long would you usually know someone before you'd like offer a JV deal? Would you ever like say, I mean, not now with COVID, like go to a meetup, meet someone, and then how long would you vet them before you might offer a JV deal or just try and do something together? Yeah, I guess I've had the privilege of knowing the people I've dealt with, but what I have done for a friend who is entering into a deal and they didn't know the person that well, there's a few ways you can go about it. You need to know the structure that the deal is going to be set up in. So for example, if it's a company, research the company, who's the directors. Google will tell you a lot about people and failed companies and whether someone's gone bankrupt. I would get my solicitor involved and get them to do financial search on parties as well. So there is some stop gaps you can put in place to get a reasonable idea about someone who's been involved in property or wanting to be involved in property, whether or not they're they're trustworthy, I guess. You get a gut feeling as well. I definitely think there's a gut feel to it that you need to feel comfortable with that person. So when you've been setting up, they said you've done five JV deals in the past, are you actually sometimes coming into a company? You're not forming the trust and company for that actual deal? Yeah, so two of the deals I set up brand new companies to purchase the properties and then brought in shareholders. One of them, my very first one, was just a joint venture with my best mate. So that was probably the simplest to set up. We had our accountant just put together a share agreement for the property. We both had our solicitors review that and away we went. It cost us about 500 bucks. So that one was pretty simple. The other two that have come and gone, I was merely a shareholder in a development entity. Both of them were residential, were they lot subdivisions, including doing house and land packages. Okay. So, so what were some concerns 
when you first started the JV kind of route? Like, did you have, feel like, oh, you know, what's going to happen? You know, how could this go wrong? Definitely. Before I did my first one with someone that I, I guess, wasn't a mate or a family member, I had really big concerns of what if I want out? What if the developer goes bust? What happens if the projected return falls short? What if it all goes on longer than expected? It is quite a daunting thing to, to go into. But when you look into it and read the shareholder agreement or the information that they're giving you, it should set all of that out. So it's really important to go through it with your solicitor and your accountant on how it's going to affect you from a, a tax point of view and what happens when it does all go south. What are you meant to do? Who's there to help you? How long would it take to get out? What your options are? And when I did go through that process with a solicitor, and you do pay for it, but it is worth it. I felt far more comfortable. I would say my anxiety level from going, oh, Jesus is all overwhelming to, wow, I'm actually quite comfortable to go into this deal because I'm protected legally with documents that are been drafted up by solicitors. Yes. So you went out to a solicitor and you had the JV agreement written up and basically it, it totally outlined what would happen when things go wrong. Right. And so did you actually look at it ever again until something popped up? Do you just put it in a drawer and not, not forget about it? Actually, I have pulled them out a few times because it's a, a company that has purchased the property and I'm a director of the company. Part of director's remuneration is set out and disclosed in those agreements on how much I can and can't get paid and what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not. So I have pulled it out on occasion to to look at that. And I've also pulled it out to refer to what was the expectation set for the deal? How long was it meant to be? What was the expected return? That kind of thing. So yeah, I have pulled it out a bit. And more recently, I have a, a shareholder wanting to get out. So I've, I've certainly pulled it out to, to see how that's going to play out. Oh yeah, we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. So when you're putting together a deal, let me just understand. So you've got all of the clauses and agreements for what happens when things go bad but you have set into it how long the money's supposed to stay there for, what were the expectations of the deal as well, how many years we were supposed to hold it for before we have to review it and then come to an agreement to either continue on or sell. Is that right? Yeah, and this is all quite the flexible part of it, and it's usually put it, I like to have it as an annexure to standard clauses and terms and conditions specific to a deal. It just makes it easy for everyone. A few years go past and everyone's kind of forgotten where we're at and what we're doing because everyone gets busy. But you've really got to know what it is you're doing in the first instance, as in what type of deal are you buying and holding, are you developing, are you renovating and then selling? Because that will determine the entity and the structure that you're going to set it up in. And therefore, that flows on to shareholder agreements or loan agreements or however else it's best set up with your solicitor's advice. And how long does it usually take, say, to set this up? Like, say, you, you found a deal and you found a friend that you trust. How mm. long would you say it usually takes to set up a JV agreement? Yeah, if it's just two people, probably 10 to 14 days. If you've got more than that, probably just add another seven days for each person you've got you know, one of ours was in New Zealand. So geographically, you've got some challenges with just sort of getting documents because some of them you need originals. So it's not a long time. The less people, the quicker. And what kind of dollar value does it cost for a solicitor to look over a JV agreement? Yeah, so to look over one, you're probably looking at about $500. To create one, you're probably looking around two grand to two and a half grand. Well worth it for peace of mind and just doing things professionally, it just seems like it's just a, such a low cost. Yeah. And if you want to get a track record and it's and JVs is something you really want to do, 
you've got to set it up right and it has got to be professional. Otherwise, people won't hand over their money and they'll lose confidence. Yeah, definitely. So do you think it's better to find a JV partner first or should you find a deal and then go after your JV partner? I always like finding the deal first because if I can do it on my own, I will. I'm a little (laughs) bit greedy in that way. But sort of like I touched on before, I would hate to let a deal go just because I can't afford it. So I'm always looking at those deals within mind. I go, well, this is a great deal and I want it. I just need to find someone else who thinks similar and we can still get it. So when you're putting together all this JV agreements, do you each have your own solicitor? Absolutely. Because I guess it's a a bit of a, a conflict if you have the same one looking over the same agreement. They can't really protect both of you. Yeah, well, league, they all say, I've had my solicitor say, who am I representing here, yourself, the company, or the shareholders? So even if I set up a company for this JV, my solicitor looking after my share as a shareholder cannot represent the company. So you do have to have potentially two solicitors sometimes to do things. Okay, fair enough. And so how do you split up the work with someone? I guess when you're coming in, is there obviously you're talking about who's bringing the money, who's actually being the active investor in it? How do you actually split up the work? What do you recommend? Yeah, going into deals, you've generally got a reasonable idea of what people bring to the table and and their skills. So it's really about having a frank conversation on how you believe it to be remunerated. So it's not really about I'm going to do, I'm going to go find the money and you're going to do the renovation. It's like, what is that worth? Because at the end of the day, people, yes, they want to feel valued, but if you tie a dollar figure to it, then if they're not performing, they don't get paid. So you do have to treat it in that respect as you're an employee of the business. That's how I see it's worked best for me. And if I'm not performing, I'm not getting paid. That way, if you don't have to sort of win to your mates, oh, Joey's not pulling his way, he never does anything, and the deal sort of falls apart from there. If it's very clear from the start that you'll get paid for this to do that, you treat it like a job and and you're expected to perform in that job. So you have each one's responsibilities set out from the get-go? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And who's going to be the directors of the company, how they're going to get paid, and whether the other shareholders, are they involved? Are they a secretary of the company or are they simply a shareholder who gives over some money and they come along for the ride? Yep. So it's totally 100% clear. Everyone knows their responsibility and what their duties are for the actual deal to be completed, how it's supposed to be completed. Yes. And that needs to really be talked about and be clear because documentation can bog people down on that. But you don't just sort of all shake hands and go, this is what I'm going to do. You really do have to have something to refer back to to make sure that moves along as it should and the deal goes as planned. And in Australia, it seems like JV deals aren't as common, but in America, like they happen all the time. And maybe it's because they have a, a huge population compared to us, but there just seems to be a whole lot more acceptance of, okay, I've got money, you've got knowledge, let's go make some money together. It does. Do you see that happening in Australia very much? I mean, obviously you've done five now, that's five mm. more than most people. But do you see it in the circles that you, you roll in in, um, in Queensland? I guess I'm exposed to it a little bit now. I wouldn't say it's, it's common. And, and the one thing I have noticed is that the people who do them normally stick together. So when you're in and you find a few people to do a JV and you know it works well, then that group consistently does more. But to find those people, it does take time. I mean, it took me over five years to find the right person 
and also for for myself to feel comfortable to get into the deal and and know I had enough knowledge to feel like it was something I wanted to do and not be too scared of doing. Yeah, I'm I'm starting to come across this a little bit myself where I'm setting up a self-storage investment business and I wasn't planning on bringing other like outside investment in straight away. It was probably more of a couple of years down the line or, or a year down the line before I'd start trying to actively grow the portfolio with outside like OPM, other people's money. People have been contacting me asking if I would be interested in them investing. And it's very much a um, on the phone when I'm speaking to them, I'm almost interviewing them like an employee. It's just kind of strange how you have to go about it because I'm really trying to get to know the person, what their expectations are, what a home run deal would look like to them, what their family situation is. Like you really have to know and feel comfortable about it. How do you feel about like have it that? Yeah, it is very personal. But when you start getting a bit of a track record, that's when people start coming to you like those people have to you. But I guess what I would, where I've come to now is not as involved in getting to understand what it is they want. I'm more involved in explaining to them what the deal is made up of and what they can expect. So if they choose to come into the deal knowing and with eyes wide open, then generally I would be willing to accept them. Having said that, I did ask a mentor about how many people sort of come in that are too hard to manage and he sort of said, look, you want to really keep it under 10 any more over than that or you're just dealing with people who potentially are uneducated and they've got too many questions when all the questions are sort of set out or the answers are laid out in the agreement. So, yeah, it's a hard thing to balance and to get right. But, yeah, I focus now on the deal itself as opposed to who the person is. And if they want that deal, then I'm happy to give it to them. It's kind of a bit of a tightrope you have to kind of to walk Because also the way I'm thinking about it is the more people you have in, the more chances that there are problems and stuff like that. And that's probably not the right way to think about it. But then also I'm thinking about if I bring people into a deal, say everyone's wanting to invest with me, they didn't come into the deal to invest with Tom, Dick and Harry. So I have to protect all the investors from the other investors. So with them like a money partnership kind of way, like they come in, they just bring the money, but they have no control over the deal. And mm-hmm. I think that makes it safer for the other investors because I'm going to have the interest of the investors and making sure that deal performs at the highest level. It's going to be my deal. So I'm protecting everyone else. But if say there's five people in the deal and one person wants to get out or one person has some kind of control about, of the deal, and they could ruin it for everyone else. It's kind of a security thing, keeping the deal secure from everyone else so it actually performs. Yeah, you're right. It is um, it is a tightrope that you walk. Maybe that's, with you sort of saying that, maybe that's why I've kept deals small, probably because there's a fear of you go any bigger, that sort of stuff can happen and you've got to try and think about how to manage it. So yeah, you might have a lot more people interested because you're doing your self-storage stuff. So yeah, food for thought, mate. I don't know how you're going to do it. Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> So mate, the one of the deals that we're talking about today, you've actually had your partner ask to move on from the deal. So at the start of that deal, what was the plan? Was it a value add, a buy and hold? What was the plan for that deal? Yeah, there's just two of us in the deal and we bought commercial property, just an industrial shed with a few tenants. So the intent was to keep it long term. It does have development upside. 
So literally keep it for probably about ten, seven to 10 years, depending on the market and with a view of developing it later on. So that was the initial intent. And is the seven to 10 years, is that written in stone? You have to have there for seven years before you can actually ask to move on? In this case, no, we could mutually agree. If we wanted to do something differently, if you had more people in the deal, it'll be, you'd have to get a grant from all parties to do that. And so what control did each of you have over this deal? I'm the director of the company that purchased the property and my partner is a money partner, however, brings development knowledge and skills. So he is a developer, very successful one. So Although I was the director of the company, it was more really because he's quite busy doing other stuff and I approached him with the deal. So he was happy with that. So he's a 50% shareholder as well. We're both 50-50. The deal was, what kind of dollar figure are we talking for this deal? Yeah, the property was 540000 both put in cash. So we wanted the property unencumbered. When you go to develop property down the track, the banks sort of like it if there's no existing loans against it. So that was our initial thinking. We'd just put in the cash, buy the property. It's getting reasonable rent. I think the yield on it's about six and a half percent. So build some cash, take some funds out along the way and just yeah, hold on until we're ready to develop. And did you end up developing it before they asked to move on? No. Well, here's the thing. We've only had it 11 months. Oh, okay. So it's it's very, very early on in the piece. Very early on in the piece. The thing with putting together deals is that life can change so quickly and dramatically that you might have some kind of emergency where you need money. Did something happen to the partner where they actually need the cash? Yes. He wants to put more cash in this deal that he's moving on with. So he's so got he- another interest outside of this deal because he's a developer and he's got quite a few things on the go and he goes, I need some more money. Tams, you want to put this property up and we'll pull out, you know, 300000 to go over into this deal. Are you refinancing or are you cashing him out? Well, I'm going to purchase his share out because I didn't – the company was to buy and hold and then develop. So to encumber that property against another deal outside of what we originally agreed was not the intent. So I said no, and then I said if you need the money – I should be able to buy you out. So he had to think about that and said, yes, I want you to buy me out. So we're in the process of doing that right now. Okay, well, wow. So I guess, you know, with development, there's a lot more risk involved. So I think maybe you did a very, very good thing where you said, look, I don't want to encumber this property with another, I'm guessing it was a development, because it, it puts those both of those properties at risk. Absolutely puts it at risk, yeah. And that wasn't the original intent. Is this a partner that you've done a deal with before or is this the only deal that you guys have done together? No, the shoe was on the other foot. So I brought him into this deal and my second and third JV, I was a shareholder in his deal. So we've worked together before, which was great. And that also gave me the confidence to, yeah, when a developer who's very successful comes to you and says, you know, hey, I want to put this cash over into this deal, for me to say no was a little bit daunting and I had to just go back to, again, the the original intent and have the confidence to go, hey, no, this is what we agreed on. I'm not going to chase that shiny object with you. I'm going to let this deal play out because this is why we bought it. And what were your first thoughts when he said to you, look, I need to get the money out? Like, what was the first thing that popped into your head? I'll buy it. Because when I when I bought it, I didn't have the cash to do the whole deal, which is why he came in. And then now I do. So I went, I'll buy it. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you want to buy it. Mm. Did you just go to a line item in the JV agreement and say, okay, what happens when someone else wants to buy this out? Yeah, so if someone wants to sell their share in the agreement is that as the other shareholder, I get first opportunity to do so. If I say no, he has the right to sell that share to whoever he wants. But it would be in my best interest if if I couldn't buy it and he wanted to sell that I would help him try and find someone because he'd want to be someone that I'd want to work with. But ultimately, if he had a friend who wanted to buy that, then he could sell it to them. And how long did the, the buyout process take? You said you're still going through it. Is it complete now or...? The only reason we're still going through it is because I'm getting bank finance for it. If I wasn't, then it literally would have been a seven to 10 day process. Just have the sale agreement drawn up by a solicitor and sign it and he gets his money back and it gets registered that I'm 100% shareholder of the company. Okay. So, I mean, the market's moved, you know, a fair bit since 11 months ago. Mm. If there was capital growth, how do you work that out? Do you get the property revalued and then you split that 50-50? How does it work? The first instance, you can go by mutual agreement, which we did. However, if we couldn't have agreed, it would have been valued by someone independently. So a valuer and or a business broker, because it would be valuing the company as well. And then you'd probably have two of those if you didn't agree on those to refer to and then you'd work your share price out of that. Oh, okay, fair enough. Mm. You said you used bank finance. How does that work? Did you obviously had some cash or did you just totally finance that the rest of it against the property? Against the property, yeah. So because I paid cash for my 50% of the property, I've gone to the bank and just said I want a 50% LVR loan. I actually had to, the shareholder of the company actually had to take out the loan, not the company. So my shareholding company has taken out a loan for 50% shareholding of that property in the company. So this is actually probably a little bit easier that you actually owned it outright. If you had a mortgage against it already, would the process have been a lot different? I believe it would have been if I didn't have cash to put in the deal and I had to try and finance it another way. I imagine it would be, yeah, quite a bit more difficult. Hmm, it's quite interesting. So what kind of interest rate did you get on it right now? 2.49. <laughs> yeah, 2.49. And when I got that quote, uh, the application's been lodged. When I when I got that, I went, gosh, I've got to revalue my whole portfolio again now because, yeah, most of my other stuff's around three and a half. 2.49. It's so low now. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. And that was fixed for three years on a 30-year term. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Mm. Yeah, excellent. So what bank was that, if you don't mind? Uh, ANZ. Oh, okay, so just one of the big four. That's awesome. So with the, the whole portfolio, how do you go about just revaluing it and doing that? How long do you think that process would take getting the whole portfolio? It's not revalued. It's just checking the interest rate for all of them. How often would you do that? I do look at my portfolio overall quite often, you know, monthly in detail. And I do talk to sort of other people, who, other investors and sort of see what interest rates they're getting. So I'm always got an ear to the ground on if interest rates are, are dropping or going up. When something like this happens, of course, get everything ready. I'm pretty good with keeping my paperwork up to date, lodging BAS, lodging tax returns. So I've got everything together. It's simple for me to just send to my broker Probably the time frame to do all that, I imagine, would probably be the better part of two months, I'd imagine. It's really quite interesting how much a couple of basins points can change your cash position, especially in commercial property is a cash flow play. Bringing a 3% interest rate down to a 2.4% interest rate is could be huge. Absolutely. It's 
yeah, it, it is a lot of money when you start holding significant portfolio. Half a, I would look at revaluing a total portfolio on anything above half percent. Yeah, definitely. So what's your portfolio looking like now? Yeah, it's pretty good. I guess the total portfolio is just over about $4 million. Revenue is, I do have an average percent return, like a net cash flow return is 8.9% for my portfolio. But, you know, I've held that for a lot of that for eight years nearly now. So when you start adding in your 3 and 4% annual increases on tenants' um, leases, that starts climbing up. So the longer you hold, it really does sort of get some momentum and, and get some cash flow coming. So I think the overall cash flow gross is over 350000 Wow, you're killing it right now. I'm really impressed. I mean, I already knew you were killing it, but you're doing really well now. Are you always looking to increase the portfolio or how are you feeling about the market right now? Yeah, I mean, I am always looking. In the past, I've been a little bit impatient and think that doing stuff was I had to always be doing stuff. And as you know, sometimes sitting and waiting is is better to, than, than actually doing something. So I've found it hard to find deals. I do want to add to my portfolio, but I really think this point for me and in the position that I'm in, holding and 75% of my loans are now P&I, so I'm paying down stuff quite significantly. So I'm going to hold on until we start having some interest rate hikes and look for opportunities then. Having said that, I'm always looking for JV deals. All right, mate. So what were the biggest takeaways from this JV deal that's basically come full circle now? Yeah, I guess the first takeaway was that you've got to remember you have an obligation to first serve the other shareholders that are in the deal. And even though that is yourself, you've got to make sure that you do sort of treat that in a professional manner. So That was probably one thing that I forgot about initially, but sort of brought back to front of mind. The other big takeaway, I guess, was I've never seen how the bank kind of use lending in this situation. So it was, I always like to learn by doing, and I'll remember that now. And I've learned what documents they need to make everything go smoothly. And the other takeaway is a real positive. Having it set up legally in the first instance, you know, we're only 11 months down the track. So if that wasn't done or we rushed that deal and not set it up, in a professional and legal manner. We could have been in a very different place right now. So I'm really glad that we did take the time to do that and never let the hype of getting a deal and getting it all sort of, you know, done without doing the groundwork and the legal work and what's really needed to make it a successful deal. Yeah, it's it's kind of um investing one on one. I mean, when I first started getting interested in, in property, I was actually more interested in development side of it. So mm. I did a lot of study on what a JV should look like, how you should do it, if you should have one or not. Basically, all of the clauses and everything that you need in there to make it a watertight deal, so both parties are protected in case of a change in circumstance. So mm. I want to provide some value to you right now. So. Mm. What do you need right now? Are you obviously not looking for a deal right now for yourself, but are you looking for a JV partner with cash, like a money partner? How can we help you? Okay. Yeah, that's very generous of you to to mention that. Um, Be looking for a JV partner who has money and not the time, but really wants to get involved in commercial and having a long-term prospect of, I would like to obtain cash flow of an ongoing nature. Yeah, so I guess you might be looking for someone who has the cash. They might not have all the knowledge, but they can come to you. You know what you're doing. You've done it previously. You've got a good track record. You're extremely trustworthy. They can come to you and say, Tam, I want to be in a deal with you. Let's do something together. 
it was something that, yeah, I'd definitely consider for sure, Andrew, yeah. Awesome, mate. Well, uh, I hope uh, we can set that up for you. So how can the listeners contact you if they want to set something up? The best way is through LinkedIn for me. So just reach out, send me a message, and then, yeah, I'll give them a ring or shoot them an email and have a chat and see if there's something that we could work together on. Perfect, mate. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show again, and it's been excellent. And today's guest has been Tam Thorogood. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be on the show. Data don't lie. That's right. In this segment, I'm going to share the property data that I collect each month. I'm going to choose one location, good or bad, to give you guys a true reflection of what the numbers are saying about that location. All right. This week's location is Caloundra. So Caloundra in Queensland, a beautiful spot I'd like to visit. So uh, in the office sector, we'll start there first. I've been tracking this market since March this year. So I've got five months of data on it. There has been three properties sold and five new leases written. The vacancy has actually gone up in the office sector in Caloundra from 14% in March to 17% in July, but the stock on hand has stayed steady. So stock for sale, it's only at 1.9%. So there's not much stock available to actually purchase. Okay, moving on to the retail sector. This has actually seen the most amount of properties sold. They've sold six since March. The vacancy rate has increased again um, from 12 to 16%. The stock on hand is sitting around 4.6%. And there's only been two new leases written in the retail sector. Moving on to industrial, there has been three properties sold in the industrial sector since March, one lease written. The vacancy has actually come down quite significantly from 7% to 4.2%. And there's roughly around 2.8% of stock on hand. So it's, it's a pretty good market, but there's just not much around to purchase. Okay, moving on to the last piece of data, the jobs, the employment opportunities. So what's really nice about Caloundra is they've had more and more jobs each month. I've been tracking them since January. Um, So I've got seven months worth of data and they've currently got 193 jobs listed in Caloundra. And in January, there was only 121 and they've just increased every single month. So that's good to see. And also what's nice to see is 27 of those 193 jobs, they're classed as high paying jobs. So over 100,000, which is really, really interesting for that market. All right, that wraps up this week's Data Don't Lie location. And if you would like a location to be reported on this show, send me a text 0410-694-694. 633 and you might be lucky enough to get your location in next week's show that brings us to the end of the show thanks tam for the interview and kevin mcleod for the music and remember in the words of grant cardone you have to develop yourself first 
before you can develop something else. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.